Good morning. Uh, it's good to, to be together. Um, thanks for your prayers for me and my family. We were uh, away yesterday, I'm sorry, last week. Uh, we were uh, in Virginia for the wedding of, of Tim on and um, some other things up there and had a really great time. But um, we listened to uh, Brother Danny's message. We're encouraged and blessed, as I, I'm sure those of you who are here were as well. Um, but it's good to, to be here. Uh, it's good to be back worshiping together with y'all. Um, last week, this past week, um, it seems like Apple dominated the news, didn't it? Uh, whether it was because of uh, the death of their co-founder or uh, the release of the iPhone 4S, they were all up in the news. And uh, it's pretty exciting for me. I have no intentions of, of getting that new iPhone, but um, when the announcement came out that Tuesday was the day that they're going to release it, I uh, found out what time it was going to be, and I kept on looking at my phone, trying to find out what is, it, what is this new phone going to look like? What are the new... Because back then, uh, by, what, Tuesday morning, we still thought it was going to be the iPhone 5, not the 4S, and so really excited about what it's going to look like, and what are the specs, what's it gonna, what colors is it going to be, what are the new features, and, and how fast is it going to be, and there's something about it. Even though I knew that there was no intention in my heart of buying this thing, there's something that was really exciting about being there and watching this thing unfold live is getting live updates from, from these bloggers who are talking about what it's going to be like. And it was really exciting uh, because there's something about uh, what is hip and cool and trendy uh, that is attractive to me. And I don't know if it's the same thing with you. Maybe some of y'all were following along the blogs and watching and trying to find a live stream. I don't think there was one. Uh, but I think uh, if you're anything like me, uh, that's part of human nature is we're always looking for what is, is, is cool and, and trendy and the next big thing because this is what we're drawn to and this is what our hearts gravitate to. Um, whether it's technology, whether it's in cars, whether it's in clothing, that's human nature is we're looking for the next trend to latch on to. When I was a freshman in college, I used to play a lot of basketball and, and one of the things that um, I, wanted, I, I tried to do was what some of y'all do, is look at who the, the, the coolest players are, who the most hip and, and trendy players are, and to look at the clothing that they wear and the shoes that they wear and try and get it so that we could be ahead of the curve, right? We're always looking for the next big thing. And in the time that I was growing up in, in college, uh, the big thing was the University of Michigan. If you've ever seen this documentary, it's a great documentary on ESPN called The Fab Five, and it talks about how these guys, these five freshman guys, entered into the collegiate basketball scene, and they took the world by storm. You guys, anyone seen this Fab Five video? Okay, Olive and few of Okay. Uh, it's really, really amazing because it talks about how uh, in those days, the University of Michigan transformed basketball from being simply basketball to being an icon, a cultural icon. It was during the time when, when hip-hop and athletics began to converge, and these Michigan players, for the first time, they're the ones who introduced these long, baggy shorts, Right before, they were wearing the Larry Bird, John Stockton-type shorts that go like mid-thigh, and nobody wanted to wear those things. I didn't want to wear those things, so what I did, I would wear these mesh shorts, but I would wear two pairs of them, one regular, and then one I would kind of sag down so that they would at least touch my knees, because I didn't like wearing these soccer-style shorts. They looked kind of weird. And so when, the, when these Michigan guys came out, they were all the rage. So when I was a freshman in college, uh, there was a group of guys. We formed this intramural basketball team at our university, and basically anyone could make a team, and you'd have to pay a certain amount of money, and then you'd enter this tournament. So we did. And 
we were, you know, we, we had no idea what we were doing. We were just young, and we were brash, and we, were, we played with, we tried to play with the same swagger that these Michigan guys did. They had this bravado about them. They thought they were all bad, and, and so we did. We had these guys that were extremely athletic, high-flying, fancy-passing, doing all these great things. We were very cool. And so the uh, season started out pretty badly. We lost the first two games. We're still trying to gel with each other because we're freshmen. We don't know each other. But towards the last three, four games of the season, uh, we ended up winning all of our games, started to come together as a team, and really got excited. We kind of breezed into the playoffs. First round of playoffs we won. Uh, we decided we're going to do something bold. And so we all shaved our heads, which if you've, <laughs> if you've ever uh, seen or, or felt my head, my, that's really a bad thing for me to do. And so we shaved our heads, and, and we're playing. The next game out, we're, we're in the quarterfinals, and we're playing against the defending champions, right? Defending champions, and as we're warming up, we've got, you know, we're all, like, excited and, and doing these layup drills and doing reverse layups and all this fancy stuff. And we look over at the other team, and we're like, there's no way that these guys are the defending champions. And we're looking at them, and they're all kind of like balding Caucasian guys. Some of them are a little bit tall, but they've got, they don't look like they could touch the net, much less the rim. Looking at them, they're like, how in the world did they, were they defending champions? A lot must have happened between uh, last year and this for them to look like this and have won the championship. And so we're playing. But as soon as we started playing, we realized that we were no match for them. Right? Something happened. As soon as we started playing, we knew that we are going to get blown out of the water. Right? They did things like they made bounce passes. They used the backboard when they shot. They boxed out. They... Uh, just completely fundamental. They knew how to shoot free throws. Right? All along as we're playing, we wanted the next great thing. But yeah, to make it to the playoffs was one thing. To win in the first round was good, but to, we wanted more. We wanted greater things. We wanted the championship, and more than the championship, we wanted a free T-shirt that came with winning a championship. That's what we wanted, but we learned something along the way. As soon as we began playing, we got in this pretty deep hole. We tried to fancy ourselves out. We realized that, you know what, you could want greater things, but hip and trendy is not going to get those things for you. As much as we want to latch on to the newest, coolest trend, at the end of the day, when we want to go to greater things, we have to go back to the basics. We have to go back to the fundamentals. And that's why these guys were the defending champions, because they didn't care about what was cool. They didn't care about what was trendy. They didn't care about what was hip. They just stuck to the basics, and they blew everybody out of the water. And as we're talking about greater things these last four weeks, leading up to now the fifth week, I know a lot of us want more in our relationship with God. But I want to tell you that, that, that reading the coolest blogs and finding out what the newest hip trends in, in Christian spirituality are, or listening to the coolest music, or downloading the coolest podcasts, these are all helpful and they're good. But if we really want to go the distance and, and, and to, to see the greater things of God, I don't think it's about going for the newest and coolest and hippest and trendiest things. It's about going back to the basics. And going back to the time-tested means that God has given to us of how we can really progress and grow in our relationship with him. Today, I want to point us back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And as we look into this passage, this passage is instructed because it tells us of the greater things that are possible for those who are intimately into the word of God and how these greater things can be played out in areas that you and I long for them, in ourselves, in our witness, in the generation to come. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. As we read this, be reminded that this is God's word to the people of Israel then, but also to the people of God now. 
It's God's word. It says, hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord, your God, that I gave you. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us when we, whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. And he goes on, but we'll stop here. This is God's word. The uh, Israelites are poised on the edge of the promised land, ready to enter in to take possession of this brave new world, this new land that they had never before entered into. And they're wondering, what is it that we need to do? Is it, are we able to do it? Are we able to go in? Is it possible for us to do it? Will we like it when we go there? And so Moses stands on the edge of the promised land, speaking to the children of Israel, and he explains to them, this is how you're to take possession of it. And I think in order for us to understand how we can move into the greater things of God in our lives. I don't, again, I don't want us to, to, to point us to the newest and, and coolest trends in Christianity today, but I want to roll us back to understanding why the Word of God is absolutely and utterly essential, though it may not be hip and trendy, why it is utterly essential for us if we want to see the greater things of God at work in our lives, in our church, in our midst. The first thing that we need to see, how does this work, is that we hear the word of God and we see greater things in, in us. Okay? We hear the word of God, hear the word of God, and then we see greater things in us. Verses 1 through 4 it says, Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live... And go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Okay, and then it goes on. It says in verse 3, You saw with your own eyes what the Lord God did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. Quite simply, here's what Moses is saying. Very simple. Saying you obey, you hear, right? You take to heart, you're attentive to, you listen, you pay heed to, you give your heart to the word of God and you will live. You ignore the word of God and you'll die. It's very simple. It's very simple. Hear, heed, obey, listen to the word of God and you'll live. Ignore the word of God and you'll die. Yeah, that's what he's saying. You saw how it happened in your life. You follow it and you're living. You see what happened about Baal Peor. These people ignored it and they died. The power of the word of God is, is this. You live it, you hear it, you live, you ignore it, you die. It's that simple. And in the Old Testament days, it's talking about a literal physical death. John Ortberg asks this great question. He, he, he says something to the effect of, why is it 
maybe we, we go to Disney World or you go to Universal Studios. You know, the people who work in there, they've got their badges here. They've got their name tag, and it says, like, uh, Sarah, and it says Sarah, uh, South Korea, or it says uh, Victor, Taiwan, or it says, like, uh, Daniel, and it says, like, Orlando, Florida. It has a, the place where, they're, uh, where they come from. Why is it that you never see anybody, and their name never says Stephen um, uh, Moab or uh, Yuna Amalek? Why don't you see any, have you met any Moabites or Amalekites lately? You met any Philistines lately? You just go walking in your neighborhood and you see somebody mowing their lawn. Hey, you look new here. Yeah, you know, I, I came from, I'm a Philistine. I came from Philistia. Why don't you see anybody like that these days? Or have you? You don't. There were many nations that were similar in size and similar in their government and their political structure and their finances and all that stuff. They're similar to Israel, but they've all since died out. Why is it that Israel has not? Why is it that Israel still continues? Not only are they still surviving, but they, this little tiny nation, has shaped the way the entire human civilization thinks for the past however many centuries. Why is it? Thomas Cahill talks about this in in one of his great books, and he says it's not because they had a lot of money, because they didn't. They were never an economic superpower. It's not because they had a great military, but they never did. No one was, ooh, Israel, oh my gosh. I tremble in fear. You look at Goliath. He never trembled in fear at any of the Israelites. They didn't have a great economy. They didn't have a great military. They didn't have any great methods and and strategy for, for, for politics or anything like that. Why is it that when all of these other nations died out, Israel continued to live and continued to influence the rest of the world? Thomas Cahill says it's simple because they had a book. Other nations were known for their power, for their economy, for their health care, for their wealth, for their medicine. All They were known for all these other things. But when other nations looked at Israel, the, the only thing they called them, they called them the people of the book. Because Israel had a Bible, they had a law, they had the word of God that set them apart from every other nation. And when they lived according to it, they lived. And when all these other nations failed to live according to it, they died out. See, the Word of God is simple. You hear, you heed, you listen to, you read the Word of God, and we live, you don't, and you die. It's not just talking about physical survival here. It's talking about spiritually as well. I know some of y'all are longing for, oh, gosh, you know, we had this revival five weeks ago, six weeks ago. I just want more of that. I just want the next day. I want to say it's not about going back to that place. It's not. But it's about moving ourselves into the Word of God. Psalm 19.7, can't put it any more, any more simply or straightforward. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Okay, reviving the soul. Your soul. Do you want a revival in your soul? You feel like your soul is dry. Oh, I was so excited for God back then, five and a half, six weeks ago, but now my soul feels dry. Why? I find myself struggling. I can't overcome sin. I can't worship anymore. It's so difficult for me to worship. It's so difficult for me to live for Jesus. Why? The simplest question, let me just, just point back, how much are you heeding and hearing the word of God? It really can be that simple. It doesn't have to be this, this cool, like, trendy thing, like, I need to go get inner healing, or I need to go and I need to speak in tongues, or I need to go and I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not about any of these things. These things are helpful, and they're good. But when it comes down to it, the deepest, the fundamental question is, are we hearing the Word of God? We can never, will never, can never outgrow the basics. You can't. 
Are we not just like, oh, you know what, I come to church every Sunday and I do my quiet time. I'm not talking about that, but are you hearing, listening to, allowing God to speak and to fill and to shape your soul? Are you giving him the space to do that? Because if we do, then our hearts will be revived. Our souls will be revived. Do you want greater things in your spiritual life? It goes back as simple as being in the word of God. In the beginning of my, of my in the front of my Bible, I have this thing where it says, um, it's just a bunch of quotes. And one of the things that I write is a, a quote from my favorite urban preacher. And, and maybe it's not politically correct to say this, but it says, I get high on this book. I, I get filled with the word of God. This is where whenever my soul feels dry, and it does a lot. It's not about God, I need to go, and I need to go into some prayer meeting, which is helpful, but I ultimately just need to go back to the Word of God. Even this morning, I was just spending some time in the Word, not reading Deuteronomy, but just reading from my own soul, and my heart was just filled with an excitement and with a passion, like my soul was coming alive. Martin Luther said, Scripture is the lighter that fuels, that is a kindle for my soul. You feel dry in your relationship with God? A lot of times, guys, it's as simple as just going back to being in the Word and letting Him speak to your soul. D.L. Moody said this. He said, sin will always keep you from this book, and this book will always keep you from sin. You feel like, you know what, I, I just don't have a desire for it anymore. I don't have a desire for the Word of God. It's probably because... We've given our hearts over to sin, and sin will always keep us from the Word of God. On the, on the contrary, when we're in the Word of God, and the Word of God is filling our souls, see, unless the Word of God becomes sweet, then sin will not become bitter. And as the Word becomes sweet, like David says, Psalm 119, your Word is like honey. It's sweeter than honey. It's far more precious than gold. Someone gives you a million dollars, what would you buy with it? I don't hear anyone ever say, I don't care about a million dollars. I'd rather have the Word of God. That's all I want. And is that our longing? Like time and time again, you hear stories of people who just read the word of God and bam, their hearts were caught on fire. It was St. Augustine, Romans 13, 13. He reads it. His, 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 complete, his life is flipped upside down. For Martin Luther, Romans 3, 21, there is a righteousness that comes from God that is apart from law, an alien righteousness that is from outside of myself. And he read this. He realized, I don't have to, I don't have to try anymore. This is a righteousness that comes to me, not because of my own trying, but by faith in God, and he gives his righteousness to me. And he said, this is, this is going to start a revolution. And it started the Reformation when he experienced that, when he encountered it, when he began to realize the depth of the gospel and the word of God just coming out and, and just piercing his soul. There was, in 1918, a Japanese man, he was a murderer. He was, he was uh, condemned to be executed for his crimes. And right before he died... He read in the word of God, he read Jesus at the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he said, it was like someone took a five-inch nail and they pierced my soul, my heart with it. He said, my heart was broken in that place. And I gave myself to the Lord Jesus. And right before he was executed, he committed his life to Christ. Time and time again, it's the power of the word of God. This is why when Wycliffe Bible Transit, this, this week they're having a, a scripture celebration and and basically what they do is each time they have a word of God, the word of God translated into someone's native language, they have this celebration. I remember hearing from one of these Wycliffe guys who was there in this, in this Indian village in some remote place in South America when his parents and grandparents had translated the Bible into their language for the first time. And he said these people threw this party and they began to celebrate that they had God's, like God speaking to them 
Like we have this in our hands. And they said there was a party in that village. And for four days, you, you go in Ecuador. For those of you who've been to Ecuador, you, you see these churches and these homes that are on stilts. They said their homes were in stilts in this South American country. And for four days, the houses would not stop shaking because they were so in, in, in just joyful celebration that they had God's word in their hands. This is God's word to us, people of God. This is the power of life and death. And I'm ashamed at how often I pass by my word of God and let it sit on my shelf when I know that spiritual awakening awaits me if I were to open it up and, and hear the word of God for myself. We want greater things. You want greater things in your life. And it begins here in the Word of God. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, that we see, not only reading the Word of God for greater things in us, not only hearing the Word for, God, for greater things in us, but obeying the Word of God leads us to see greater things in our witness, okay? Verse 5 says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? The second thing that we see here is we obey God, and then we begin to see greater things in our witness. We, I know some of us have, have made it a point to witness and to share the gospel and evangelize and to tell our story with other people, and I think that's a great thing, and, and, and Brother Danny Chen led us in a, in a seminar some weeks back to help us to explain uh, and to articulate the gospel to other people who don't know it. But I think one of the things that is essential for our witness and for us to see the greater things of God is that we not only share the right words, but we obey the word of God as well. See, the, these people in Israel are, are, are realizing these neighbors around Israel are looking at Israel. The law was given to set them apart. The word of God was given to set them apart to see that, well, these people are different. In, in every other nation surrounding Israel in the ancient world, they looked and they had a multiplicity of gods. They had many gods. And they looked at Israel and they say, wow, they've only got one God. And all the nations would look at Israel and they would come to Israel and they would see, wow, these people are different. And they begin to realize, you know what, what is it about Israel that sets them apart? Because all these other nations are becoming extinct, are going to the graveyard of these, of these nations, but Israel continues to remain strong. What is it? And they realize that they were a people of the book that they had the word of God and they were obeying it and they were living as a result. See, when the Israelites began to obey the word of God, it enhanced their witness. They began to see greater things in their witness and, and, and then the nations would look at them and they would say, wow, there's something different about these ancient people, about these people of God. See, there's something interesting. It, it says that these, uh, what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? We think about what the, what the law does is the law protects the people of God from the deathly effects of sin, right? It's, it's, it's pretty simple, isn't it? We have laws these days because God wants to protect us from sin. Every law that was given is a protection, is also a provision of life, but it's a protection against death. 
this, uh, as we, we're, we're talking about Apple, I was thinking about this because uh, there was a few occasions where we were up at the mall in, in Virginia, walking through and looking at the Apple store and seeing some of the things that they have. And there's this kiosk for um, this thing called Ghost Armor with which you use to protect your iPad and your iPhone and things like that. And as I was thinking about, um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of Apple products, and I realize that whenever you buy an app, whenever I buy an Apple product, it's never just a product that I'm buying. You ever realize this? I bought my MacBook Pro, and I realized that, you know what? They're trying to sell me some other stuff also. I need this Apple Care. Right? This is kind of like in case something goes wrong, you've got to protect your computer. So you need to have like this insurance kind of deal. And so you get that. And, and, and I don't have just a computer. I've got this like protective sleeve that goes over it. So when I put it in my bag, it doesn't uh, accidentally open and, 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 and mess itself up. Realize I, I've got to have something like that on my computer as well. I've got this lock that I bought because I saw my friend have it when we were, uh, we were staying at a hotel uh, room together. He had this thing that uh, you attach it to the side of your computer and then you... you, you tie it to the table so that when you have to walk away and go to the bathroom, you're, you're at like Barnes & Noble, you're at Starbucks or something, you have to go to the bathroom, you can use this lock and you can uh, attach it to the table so that when you walk away, no one's going to steal your computer. I realize that when I buy my computer, I'm not just buying that, I've got to buy all of these other things. Same thing with my iPad. I bought this iPad, but soon after I had to get an, a protective case for it, right? And then on top of that, you had to get a screen protector so that when you play with it or when you, other people play with it, they don't scratch it up. Same thing with the iPhone. I've got this case on the back of it. I've got this screen protector. You're never just buying the product. You're always buying these other things on top of it. I never did that for my rinky-dinky Samsung flip phone. I never bought any insurance for it. I never put a screen protector on it. Why? Because I didn't care about that thing. I could drop it. I'm like, oh, well, I'll just go get a new one. What is it about protection? What is it that we protect? The reason I protect these things is because these things are precious to me. These things are important to me. These things are valuable to me. And the law of God and the word of God was given to the Israelites because they were precious to him. And the things that God puts laws around are things that he considers to be precious as well. Our purity is precious and valuable. That's why there are safeguards around them. That's why he puts these protections around our hearts because our hearts are precious to him. That's why he puts protection around our bodies, because our bodies matter to him, around our minds, because our minds are valuable and they're important. That's why we have protection, because these things matter to God and they ought to matter to us as well. See, when we read the word of God and we look at these laws and we get upset and we get angry, it's because fundamentally we have a misguided view of God and of his intentions and we don't believe he's good. We don't believe that his way is the best. We don't believe that his way can satisfy us in a way that nothing else and and no pleasure and no person and no experience in this life can. We feel like we think that we believe that God is trying to keep us from these things that will give us life. And fundamentally, we don't believe that God is really that good. But the law was given to protect us. You ask all of these nations in the time of Israel. They look at Israel and they're jealous because they wish, why don't we have this kind of protection? Why don't we have a God who's near? Why don't we have a God who cares for us in this way, who considers us valuable, who considers us precious? And so as Israel began living out the law of God and began obeying the word of God, it it strengthened their witness so that other nations would look at them and they would say, wow, they really do have a God who's alive and who cares about them. 
See, it wasn't just enough that they had the word of God, that there were people who had the book. They were defined as a people of the book because they lived it out, because they lived in utter and sheer obedience. And there were times when they did it, and they paid the consequences for it. But when they did, they lived the life and the fullness of it that God intended for them to live. And other nations saw it, and it became a witness to them. You see, our witness is enhanced not simply, it's not just about the words that we say. That's why St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel always, but use words only when necessary. Saying the gospel of our lives and the preaching of our lives, our obedience to the word of God is what will help us to see greater things in our witness. I think it was uh, 2008, ESPN ran this story about this, uh, this great football game. And I know uh, some of y'all are like, oh, I don't want you to hear about football, but this is a cool story. It's a football game unlike any other. It's a football game between a school called Grapevine Faith in Texas. There's a private Christian school called Faith and a school called Gainesville State School. Okay, so Gainesville State, could just think about this backwards because our Gainesville UF is really good. This Gainesville was terrible. They were 0-8. That means they lost eight times. They never won a game. Terrible team. 0-8. Faith was 7-2. and Right, one of the powerhouses, they had all kinds of uh, modern equipment and all this stuff. The problem with, with this Gainesville State School was that they weren't really a school at all. They were a correctional facility for students ages 13 through 19 years old. They had 14 people on their football team, which means most of the people had to play both offense and defense. There's a reason why they were 0-8. They used the most primitive, dilapidated equipment, seven years old. They didn't have anything, any good equipment. Every game they played, because nobody, no one was going to cheer them on, every game they played, they had to travel somewhere else. It was always an away game. No one ever cheered for them. In fact, the, these, these uh, linebackers would say, um, we saw the look of fear in people's eyes whenever they would see us enter into their stadium. So the coach of faith, a guy named Mark Hogan, when he saw that, that Gainesville State was uh, on their schedule towards the end of the season, he thought, what can we do? We are a Christian school who abides by biblical values. What can we do to show the love of God to them? And so he sent out an email to all the players, to all the, the, the fans, to all the parents, to all the students of, of his school faith. And he said, my aim and my goal is one thing that we would show these people of Gainesville State School that they are every bit as valuable as any other human being on earth. He says, I, here's, my, here's what I want us to do. When they enter into the stadium, no one ever has ever cheered for them. I want you to make a banner that says, Go, Gaines, uh, that says, Go uh, Gainesville. And I want you to have them run through it. And then as soon as they do, for 40 yards, I want fans to line up and to cheer them on. He printed out the names of each of, their, uh, each of the members, and he gave it to every person in the stand. He says, when you see them, I want you to cheer for them. I want you to tell them you can do it. I want you to, say, tackle them and, and, and do these things for them. And so the day came, and this Gainesville State School never, ever played a game like this before. They walked on, and they heard people cheering for them, and they thought something was wrong. They ran through, burst through this banner and heard people clapping for them and saying, go Gainesville, go Tigers. They thought that the the fans had gotten everything confused, gotten everything mixed up. All of a sudden, they heard parents of the other players cheering, tackle my son, and then saying their name. Like, what in the world is going on? This team had scored two touchdowns the entire season, this Gainesville State School. That game, well, it wasn't much better. They scored two touchdowns that game, but they said they played like they've never played before. 
He said they, they play like they've never, ever before played. And at the end of the game, they lost 33 to 14. At the end of the game, they drenched their coach with Gatorade. Hey, Rick Riley of, of ESPN says that's the first time an 0-9 coach has ever gotten Gatorade dumped on him. And at the end of the game, the player said, hey, let's go together to the middle uh, at, at, at midfield and let's pray together. And the quarterback for Gainesville State School said, can I lead in prayer? So the coach at Faith was a little bit scared. Like, we're a Christian school. These guys are prisoners. And this guy wants to lead in prayer. I don't know what he's going to say. So he, but he said, okay, go for it. He said, God, I don't know how all this happened. So I don't really know how to thank you. But I would have never in my wildest dreams believed that there were this many people who cared about us. And as they left the field, they gave each other hugs and high fives. They were lifting their hands up in the air as if they had won the state championship, like they were number one. And as they went back to their bus, escorted by the police, each of these 14 students got a, got a paper bag. Each of them got a paper bag. It had a burger, had fries, had soda, had a Bible, and it had an encouraging letter written by one of the football, uh, from one of the, the players on Faith's team. And as they were leaving, the coach of Gainesville State grabbed the hold of the shoulders of Mark Hogan, face coach, and he shook him. And he said, I don't know what you were thinking, but you have no idea. You have no idea what you did for these men. And they walked onto the bus. And as they were leaving, all of them shifted to one side of the bus. And with tears, they were waving at all of these fans and all of these players who lived out in obedience the word of God and gave them a hope that they never before saw. And to this day, members from faith still go to that prison and mentor and tutor and disciple these other students. And their hearts are wide open in that prison to the gospel because they didn't just hear, they didn't just know it, they lived out, they obeyed the word of God, and they saw greater things. And it can be that simple, guys, that simple for us to be a bright and shining witness to see greater things in the lives of those that we see each day. The last thing that we see then, the last thing that we see is teach the word of God to others, and we'll see greater things in the next generation. Isn't that what we all long for? We talk about uh, the hope of the future and the next generation. Teach the word of God, it says, starting in verse 9. It says, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land, and may teach them to your children. Okay, there's words, the revere, and the teaching. Right? Information, transformation, impartation. Take these things you have and, and pour this into the next generation. That's what he's saying. You want to see greater things in the next generation? It's not just about playing with them or having fun with them or, 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 or taking them to eat McDonald's. It's about teaching and imparting the word of God to them. He's saying life, this spiritual life that we live, it's not, it's not a lazy River. It's not a lake here where you just sit here and then we, we just kind of wait and, and wait for somebody to push us along. He's saying we're a river that is flowing downstream. And if we don't do anything, then we're going to drift away from godliness. That's the way it is. 
in your children and my children. It's the way it is in, in our youth and in our kingdom keepers. And if we do nothing, then they're going to drift further and further away from God because that's the nature of this world that we live in, that this world has fallen and is broken. And if we don't intercept and if we don't teach the word of God to them, even at a young age, one year, two year, three years old, if we don't teach them the word of God, then they're learning all kinds of other things and they're going to drift downstream apart from the word of God. That's why he says, look, don't let them slip from your heart as long as you live because our hearts, we sing, are prone to wander. And if it's true of us as adults who know better, how much more so is it true of the next generation who doesn't know better? How much more so do we need to invest and teach the word of God into their lives? It's not, again, it's not just about having these hip, trendy gatherings for our people. It's about teaching and imparting the word of God into their lives. Okay, what is it that we're teaching to our people? I, I feel like I've been saying this a lot lately because I, I think it underscores what I think is an utter and essential need for us to impart that to other people. Our married folks, what are we teaching to our single folks about what's important in life? Single folks, what are you teaching your college students about what's important in life? College folks, what are you teaching high school students? High schoolers, what are you teaching the middle schoolers? Middle schoolers, what are you teaching kingdom keepers and, and younger children what's really important in life? What is the message we're communicating? What are we imparting to the next generation? Not only through word, but through deed. What are we showing is important? At the end of the day, I'm pretty sure that Steve Jobs on his deathbed didn't ask his kids to come and say, hey, can you read all of my stocks and my portfolio? Can you read my bank statements? He didn't. Nobody on their deathbed wants people to read that to them. What is it that we need read to us? We need the hope of, of Psalm 23, the hope of Romans 8, the hope of the gospel, the hope of the promises of God and the life ever after. That's what we need. That's what's lasting. That's what's going to give hope to the next generation as well as to this present one. What are we imparting and teaching and communicating and valuing? I, I said this to our Korean congregation some time back, but if we are resistant to sending our kids to missions, if we're resistant to sending our, our children to our youth ministry gathering and, and punishing them and saying, you can't go to that because you didn't study enough or because you did this badly, don't go to church, then what message is being communicated? What really is important that if we're saying you need to go and get your 4.0, you need to go and get your piano lessons on, you need to go and get your sports lessons, you need to do all these things but skip out on church, then what are we saying is important? We're building a culture where it's all about them and they grow up and life is all about them and then we begin to condemn them and say, well, look, well, I can't believe you turned out this way without looking into our own lives and how we've done in imparting the knowledge or lack thereof of God's word into the future generation. And we look at them and blame them without realizing how much a role we have had in shaping them to become who they are. What are we communicating to the next generation? Several years ago, we had this uh, senior class, wonderful senior class, and they were very influential in the lives of our youth ministry. And at one point, a, a few of the guys had, had posted their top 10 list, top 10 girls, celebrities, whoever it is. And they posted that on what was called the Zanga page, which was kind of like the old day Facebook. And they posted that, and someone wrote to me, and they said, hey, you know what? Do you think you could talk to them about this? And so we began having these the series of offline conversations about, hey, wh what, is, 
what is your intent behind this? Because the message that you're communicating is that if you don't look like this or this or this or that, then you're not part of the top 10. You're not worthy of being in the top 10 in this person's life. And this is what the leaders of our youth ministry were communicating. Ex- not explicitly, but implicitly. Explicitly, they just say, well, these are the people I think are cool. But the implicit message was, if you're not like this, then you're not as worthy as the ones who do look like this. What message are we communicating? By the movies that we advocate, by the celebrities that we talk about, by the TV shows that we propagate, by the things that we go to and the things that we talk about and the things that we say we value, what message is being communicated to the future generation? And if that's the message that I'm communicating and that you're communicating, then how much are we responsible when they take what we do and they take it to the next level? Because they always do. People will take what they're... Again, you don't have to have a leadership position. If people look at you and they think you're a leader, they're going to take what you do and they're going to take it the next level. What's being communicated through our actions, implicitly as well as explicitly? What are we communicating? Not just who are my favorite people, but what are we communicating about what's valuable, what's important, what we consider to be of worth in our eyes? And what are we communicating? And we want to see greater things, then we can't have mixed messages that are being sent here. We have to communicate the teaching of the Word of God, which is why in Deuteronomy, constantly, time and time again, Moses constantly reiterates that it is the role of the parents to raise the next generation. Kenda Creasy Dean wrote this book called Almost Christian. She did this longitudinal study, and she said, no matter what people say, it will still be that the most important people in the spiritual foundation, in the spiritual development of your children is going to be the parents. It's always going to be the parents. By and large, children will mimic the spirituality of their parents. Again, it doesn't mean that as the parents go, children are locked into that fate, but by and large... That's our responsibility as parents as well as now if you're not a parent, we're spiritual parents. That's us. It's all on us. It's not all on us, but we have to understand the high calling that has been placed on us to intentionally live and to intentionally think about the messages that are being communicated to those who come behind us. See, guys, the, the Word of God is utterly important utterly important. It's not just, it is suicidal for us to ignore the word of God and its teachings and its command and to fail to impart that to other people. It was so utterly important that we get this, that God didn't just leave it to us to read, but he let the word become flesh and to dwell among us that the word incarnate, that Jesus Christ came into our world and lived in our neighborhood and and, and walked, and then he showed us the way to live, and he taught us the way to life. And though he did everything that this good book tells him to do, he didn't end up with life for himself. But in his obedience, it led to death. But as he hung crucified, the words that he pronounced that struck this Japanese Murderer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do are the words spoken over us as well. 
so that when we strayed from and erred from the word of God, forgiveness falls over us and washes over us so that the life that Christ alone deserved has been given and granted to all who would believe and all who would live. It says, this is what has been opened up for us. The price has been paid. The cost is high, but the grace is infinitely higher. Do we long to see greater things in us, in our witness, in the next generation? I do, and I know that you do as well. But the way to renewal and the way to revival runs right through the word of God, and it only runs through the word. And so my, I implore you as, as well as to myself, let's be again a people of the book. Let's pray. Guys, I speak with the most loving concern that I can, that I long for us to become people marked by the word of God, that when people come to us for advice, it wouldn't just be I think or I read on this blog, but it would be us oozing out and spilling the word of God and that we would impart that to our family members to our friends, that we would live that out, that when we feel dry, when we feel like we can't worship, that we would realize that the way to worship goes through the word. John chapter 4, Jesus says this, that when we have a hard time worshiping, it's because we're lacking the word of God. Guys, that we would be people of the book, that we would read it, and that we would love it. It's never too late. I know a bunch of you picked up your Bible reading plan at the beginning of the year. I was so encouraged because I saw somebody who picked up a Bible reading plan from last year, and they're still going through it this year. They couldn't finish it last year. They're still only in the middle part of the year, but they're still reading. They're picking themselves up, and they say, I want to keep on reading. I want to keep on reading because I need the Word of God for life. Brothers and sisters, that we would be a people of the book, people of the Word, and that when others look at us, they would see the Word of God incarnate in us. Let's take a moment to pray. In whatever ways God might be convicting us, maybe it's uh, to, to, to pray a prayer asking God, forgive me for turning to other things. Forgive me for letting other things rob me of my hunger for your word. Maybe we can pray that. Maybe for others it's, God, I want to hunger for your word, but so many distractions. Lord, give me the strength to carve out that space so that my soul could be set ablaze. I could be revived every day of my life. Revival awaits every time I would sit before your word. Help me to enter into that. Lord, I want to be a witness for others, but I struggle with this area, with that area. Help me to obey, to live it. Let's take a moment right now to come before the Lord in prayer. Whatever ways, uh, however way you need to pray, uh, let's just come and just spend a minute or so before the Lord, praying and asking the Lord God that he would help us uh, to live out and to know and to long for and to live his word. Let's pray together for a couple moments.
Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us, that you would shake us so that we might see things as they are, that we might see ourselves as we are, that we would see our witness as it is, that we would see the next generation as it is, not to sugarcoat any of these things, but to see them for what they are and then to long for more and to know that the pathway to this revival and to greater things goes through your word. Father, help us not to dismiss the word as being old school or old-fashioned or old-time or, or being something that we've progressed or somehow moved on from. But God, help us to know that your word was and is and until Jesus, you return, will always be our life, our soul, satisfaction, the bread of life for us. And as your Holy Spirit lives within every child of God, we have a teacher who will reveal the truth to us and help us to understand it. So help us to read it, to love it, to live it, to pass it to other people. We thank you, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.